Your brain needs support, and new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L theanine, and caffeine, Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill, or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Hey, everybody. Welcome to the No Film School podcast for the week of March 29th, 2023. I am Charles Hain, toothless here. Uh, I am with Jason Hellerman, screenwriter and writer at No Film School. Hey. Filmmaker Gigi Hawkins. Good morning. Filmmaker, tech editor, uh, knowledgeable about all things Yarrow Altonin. Hello, hello. And there's Did my the cat, cat, too. Respond? And we got yeah. cats. We and got a dog, cat. Roosevelt. We got all sorts of animals on here. This week is the money episode, which we've been promising for a while. We're going to be talking about should you pay for your own productions? Should you talk to other people about how much you are paid? What is the cost of living in Los Angeles and New York and other media hubs around the world? And how should you be allocating your funds properly? That is this week on the No Film School podcast. No news, no tech, all money. I am all about it. This is like, I love talking about money so much because I feel like there's this weird cultural thing where we're not supposed to talk about it and we're not supposed to ask people what they make. And I remember when I was like um, eight, this guy came to school like for career day and he was talking about his career and what he did. And I raised my hand. I was like, how much do you make? And my teacher gave me a speech after he left about how inappropriate that was that I asked that. I was like, but you're telling us about what careers to do and isn't what you make part of the decision-making matrix you do about, like, I wasn't trying to shame the guy. I was just like, is this a job in which you can like occasionally go on a trip or not? And there's this weird thing where we're only supposed to talk about money with like our direct relatives. And I find that like to be a weird cultural thing that I think keeps those who make less money down Mm -hmm. because we don't understand how much those who make more money actually are making. So we're going to take it off. That's like the the crux of it, isn't it? It's it's something. I mean, this is me putting my tinfoil hat on. It's that the the social construct that like you don't say that because then you don't ask for more because you don't know who else is you know making more or less or or whatnot. Like yeah, it's it's so yes. Talk about it. Do it all the time. The Watchmen. Yeah. (laughs) Right. (laughs) One thing that was uh, somebody in my early career did for me was help me negotiate a salary when I was jumping from one company for another to another, and it was a pivotal moment in my life. When you know you look back at like the moments where things changed, or you went from like you, where you truly leveled up. And, uh, because of this mentor and he was, you know, probably in his late twenties at the time, but he said, tell them you're making this, tell them this is your base salary. And it, and it changed the trajectory of my career and my ability to save, to ultimately get to the point where I was able to leave the career that I didn't want to be doing to pursue filmmaking. So I go back to that specific moment where he helped me negotiate and 
helped me see the value of my work. And I think it's, I love talking about money for that particular reason. Like I mentioned uh, two last week on the No Film School podcast, a lot of the times people aren't talking about money because they're scared that it's tacky, but it's critical that we do, especially if you're from a historically underrepresented space, because you need to know what your work is worth. And also, you know, just looking at the numbers, I, I will not be paid the same amount as my male peers. And so I need to advocate and negotiate not only for myself and my future, knowing that there will be that gap that I'll always be trying to make up for, but also for people coming after me, carving that path for the future. So I'm so glad we're talking about it. I also think there's this thing, California has a law now where employers aren't allowed to ask you what you make, which I all, which on the flip side, I think is also great. So I'm not for asking in all cases, I, I, for talking in all cases, I am for voluntarily and eagerly talking about it when you are the worker. But I think that it should be illegal for people to ask you what you're currently making, because that's irrelevant to what they're offering, right? Like, and as we've seen, that becomes a historical injustice where, because typically women get paid less, when employers ask them what they're currently making, they then make less at the new employer. We're like, if you have a hundred thousand budgeted for the job, just pay a hundred thousand for the job. Like that's the budget, whether or not the person currently you're hiring is only making 60, like you should just pay the people what they are worth for the job they do. So I love that law in California. I wish that law were nationwide. There's also this weird thing on a film set where so many people are making such a, like not on union sets, on union sets, it's all very structured and God bless it. But on non-union sets, you'll regularly see like crews with like a wide array of prices because you're always negotiating, you're out doing a half million dollar indie feature. Everyone's negotiating some sort of favor rate to do it. And so there's this weird taboo about talking about it because Nobody wants to know the favor rate that somebody else is doing or, or if you're at a favor rate and somebody isn't, and it becomes complicated, but we should still be talking about it. We should still be open and honest about what we are making, even if it's a number that we're embarrassed about, either embarrassed because it's so high or embarrassed because it's so low. I feel like when you get to that, that area of, of money talk, you know, it's at one, on one side irrelevant because it's a favor rate. You know, you're just, you're, you're, it's more of a passion project than it is anything else than like a money making opportunity. And then on the other hand, you should talk about it because like, you're also paying people not for, you know, what they're worth, but what you think their value is to like, that they're bringing to the project. You know, if you really want that cinematographer and he's like, look, I can't go lower than, you know, X amount of dollars. You're going to pay him a little bit more than you can afford or a little bit more than what you're paying everybody else because you want that talent on set. So it's like the conversation stops becoming about money and about who you want to join you on your project, isn't it? Yeah, I think that's a fair way to look at it. Like Charles said, you know, union structure is is there and it's great, um, but it doesn't mean you shouldn't ask just because I think uh, you want to know what you should be getting, right? Or 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 how things are working, you know, or how things are structured, uh, and making sure you know that the the I guess production supervisor doesn't have you paid at a lower level than maybe you should be at, or or that your union says, you know, there's always some sort of checks and balances to go on there. When it comes to the favor rate, I think there's obviously a lot of nuance in this, but a lot of it comes down to like if everybody's working on one thing and they're all favors. That's a different scenario. If you are the person chipping in who knows maybe the cinematographer, you're going to be AC, 
but everybody else is working for a standard rate. And yeah, people should ask. I think for all of the reasons we talked about, especially the one Gigi talked about, which is, you know, the propensity for, you know, women to be paid less than men or, you know, there to be favoritism on set and things like that. So the good thing I think we're talking about here is that, yeah, we should all be talking, you know, whether that's when you guys break for lunch or before you start, you know, get together with the other PAs. Hey, what are you making per hour? What's your experience? What's going on here? Um, especially moving forward. Like, let's say you're working with someone who someone else has worked with in the past. You know, you would love to find someone who worked on that set and said, hey, I did this job. What were you paid for a comparable film? You know, how did that translate? Especially in these non-union things where it can be such a crapshoot as to who's getting paid what and when. We should do like name tags, but with like numbers per hour. And then just I can't imagine people on set or, you know, like the day rate. This is what you're making instead of. <laughs> well, I mean, so yeah. one thing you will run into, and you, this is something that uh, I only know a couple of shops that do this, but I have a friend who has an open books shop. He, he's a post guy. He does VFX. And every job, the budget of the job goes up on the wall. And uh-huh. so everyone who works there knows what the company is making and what everybody is making on the job. So if you're coming into day play, if you've been contracted for the run a show, whatever it is, and you know what the profit margin the company is making is. All of that gets printed every job on the wall of his post house. And I always liked that because his argument was like, look, everybody's going to work really hard on this one. And I don't want anyone having the delusion that the company is making more than it is or less than it is, right? Like, because the company is not making 80% of this budget. We're making 20%. We're also here working hard. And it sort of becomes a thing where everyone gets a better understanding of how the mechanics work. So if they someday bump up to supervisor and have to manage a job, they're better prepared to do that. And so I think it's a really great attitude take to take to be an open books shop. And in some ways, that's one of the things a union does because those union rates are published, Absolutely. because those union rates are like we all know the WGA minimum for a script sale. We all know what mm-hmm. a local 600 minimum BP is. It creates something like an open book system where it's like everybody, know, you know, the DP could always be making more, but we know they're not making less than X. And it gives us all an understanding of what everyone is out there doing it for. And I think that kind of public information is really good and healthy. Also, even when you're on the management side, because I remember being on some low budget indies that I was out on a favor rate. And being like a grumbly 22-year-old kid and being like, these fuckers are probably making a lot of money on this job because I didn't understand the mechanics of how budgets worked and all that. And like, I would have loved to have seen the budget because I bet they actually weren't making that much money on that job. Or any money at all, yeah. Yeah, if it was a passion project. And so I was probably more resentful at some of those producers because I didn't understand all of the stresses they were dealing with. So I think, I mean, I don't want to get as tinfoil hat as Yaro said, although I, I do have the suspicion I don't think it's deliberate. I don't think a cabal of people got together and were like, we should make it a social taboo to talk about money. But I do think at various times in history, wow. powerful people <laughs> have been like, I'm not excited about like, like we should discourage, like we should make this distasteful. I don't want you talking about it. And that is built into a social taboo. And I do think that not talking about money always benefits the people with more money. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. One yeah, that's the best I, way to put it, I, I think, you know? Yeah. One thing that I'm cur- I'm thinking about, like the indie passion project situation and transparency. I forget the specific word, but one producer created a line budget for me uh, that was called had universal base. I think so. Basically, everyone was this, paid the same day rate, which I thought was really interesting. And you know, 
totally is in line with the Equal Rights Amendment of valuing, which has, still hasn't passed, of valuing like the work of a PA as well as a DP. So I'm curious, like, in, if outside of something where it's equal like that and everyone's being this, p- being paid the same, how would we react to, or how would people react to, like, oh, seeing that the sound person is being paid six hundred dollars a day, but the first AD is being paid. 300 are people ready to accept that they don't that they may not be paid the same amount and this is specifically for indie indie like scrappy projects like a short for example well that's where like you know coming coming back to what i said earlier is what do you need you know and i think for some indie projects especially if you're hiring people that aren't your friends you're gonna come to people and be like i really need a you know a sound person i really need you know, X person, A, B, C person. And, and then they're going to be like, well, if you really need this, you're going to have to pay this rate, you know? And it's, it becomes less about like what you can afford and more about what you need. I think from, from my perspective, because there's a project I did in 2019 and we needed a sound person and we couldn't find one, you know, for less than a certain amount of you know money per day. And we just had to bite the bullet because we needed good sound. You know, we were, in parks, in hotels, in restaurants, and in, in co-working spaces, and we and, and it saved our project because in the end, it sounded a lot better than what we would have made it sound if we didn't get like good, good sound person. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over thirty thousand mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over six hundred dollars each week. You can also save up to one dollar off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. I think the tradition on indie films, in my experience, has always been that the first AC and the sound person make more than everybody else on that indie film, where you can do that indie thing where it's like, all right, everybody's out at minimum wage, whatever the minimum wage is, that's what we're doing. But we all understand that the first AC, because those are commodity jobs, they are a rarer skill and you desperately need someone good. And when I've been out on those jobs, it's been a long time, but when I was out, you know, knew the first AC was making more money than everybody else and everybody was cool with it because there are those linchpin jobs that you can't do without. What's interesting is that, like, I've told this story many times. My first feature, I made less than everybody else. So I was three months out of grad school. I'd shot a bunch of thesis films. I wanted a feature on my resume. And the producer met with me and was up front. The producer was like, hey, so I bet you really want a feature, your, your first feature credit. And uh, I made 50 a day, and no one else on set made less than 200 a day. This was 20 years ago. But he was like, but you're getting a feature credit out of it. And I was like, I am getting a feature credit out of it. And that was valuable to me at the time. So, you know, this question comes up a lot of like, should you do free work? And I'm against free labor. I think we should always be rewarded in some way for our labor. I think that is vital. Now, the rewards can be many things. The rewards can be, I feel really good about supporting my friend. And if you have your rent paid and you have enough to eat and you have a good friend and you want to do four days for them for free and you're not going to resent them about it, do it. It can also be, I get a credit that is a legitimate credit that is something I'm looking for or is work on my reel that I'm legitimately trying to build. So I'm trying to do, I don't have any commercial or I don't have any recent music video or I don't have comedy and you want to do something in that direction, you can work for free. The biggest problem comes, A, when unethical people take advantage of this 
and B, when people aren't being clear enough about them with themselves about why they are doing mm -hmm. the thing they are doing. Like, for instance, I have a lot of friends who are writers who will write a spec every year or every other year totally for free. But then there's producers who will have a meeting and be like, oh, I have this idea. Would you be interested in specking it? And it's like, well, at that point, it's like if you're a writer, you could spec your own idea or this producer's idea. The producer could pay you to write their idea as well. And it's this weird thing where, like, because we know everybody wants to do it, it's a much more complicated, messy thing because it's all distorted incentives. Nobody ever, you know, the joke is like nobody ever asks the taco shop, hey, can I have a free taco? And if it's really good, then I'll buy two more. But in the film industry, there's always, we know how much everyone wants to make the tacos. And it distorts all of the negotiations. So I think that there are legitimately times where it's okay if people are making a variety of things. You know, if you found a really great DP who shot seven thesis films and is looking for their first feature, it can be okay if you are upfront and communicative with them, because I have no problem with that producer. He is still working. And I don't have issue with the fact that he was very upfront with me about what I was being offered. Would I have shot a second movie with him for $50 a day? Hell no, because now I had a feature credit and he should start paying me proper stuff. Rate. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and your feature rate is usually going to be lower than your commercial rate because it's more days and it's not a commercial. Yeah, commercials used to throw around so much money for like a day. Yeah. It'd be millions of dollars. And people would just, you know, make their entire, you know, basket or bread basket, whatever, for the year. Um, I do want to say one more thing, kind of adding on to what Gigi said about value. You know, being able to advocate for yourself and like make enough where you feel valued and you can value your work and you can value yourself that builds so much self-confidence that you can then kind of take forward and continue building, you know, and making better things. And if you are always undervaluing yourself, you then kind of fall into this gap. And I've been here, I've been there before where you then, you know, produce work and you're like, oh, well, maybe it's not that good. Or, you know, I, I need a little bit more time. Or, and then you start not to value like your own creative contributions to the community. And that's where people can get in trouble. So it all starts with valuing yourself. And that starts with advocating for how much money you make. I think one thing we didn't touch on is um, this idea of profit sharing, right? So like, yeah, we all want to be paid and I certainly agree with whatever, but like what I see is maybe one of the futures of indie film or the way indie film can sustain itself uh, in the current Bitcoin. structure. Uh, yeah, maybe not, but uh, uh, <laughs> NFTs, no. Um, is this profit sharing idea? And we saw the Duplass brothers did it a while ago. I'm sure other people had the idea before them. That's no offense to them. Just, I don't want to say they credit it with it. And now you're seeing um, hilariously Matt Damon and Ben Affleck's new company doing this exact same thing, which is the idea that, yeah, people will be paid different amounts for the work they did on the film, right? That's just part of budgeting and part of the way it goes. But when it comes to the profit share, everyone will share in the profits. So like when it comes to valuation, yeah, you maybe are taking a lower rate to work on something, but it's hopefully a project you believe in. And it's also now a project that you could profit from, you know, whereas before we've seen studios and other places make all the money if you have that breakout hit let's say like a Blair Witch Project or, you know, whatever, like a, a slasher, some sort of like one of these horror movies, doesn't matter what the, the movie is. The idea is like, if you made it and you worked on it and you worked in a significant amount of time in these roles, you own a piece of that profit and it'll come back to you. I think that's a good way to evaluate and something I hope more people do in the future, you know, which is going to be interesting 
um, especially to track these bigger companies that are trying to do it. Uh, and knowing that like the people who are working on something aren't just working for their day rate, which maybe is less uh, because they want all the money to go on screen because they want that movie to then take hold and then to make money in the future. So we'll see. There's also something to say about like studio accounting. Cause isn't there, you know, there's one of the Harry Potter movies that made a gazillion dollars. Isn't profitable still because Warner brothers keeps like siphoning money off of it. Yeah, I mean, that's it. The studio counting episode will have to come at a different date. But I, <laughs> but I think, you know, in terms of like strictly indie film stuff that's easy to track, you know, that to me seems like a way forward where people can kind of have their cake and eat it too. But we'll see. I mean, I don't. So I've been on probably two dozen projects in my life where there was some sort of like part of my deal memo that had profit sharing built in. And one of them sends me a check every year. And it's great. And I'm so happy. And it's wonderful. But like, even in indie film, in co- most indie films make no money, and even the do- the ones that do make no money. So, absolutely, if you happen to work on Blair Witch, you should uh, you should be able to live off Blair Witch for the rest of your life. Hooray! Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. But backend is so tricky. Because the other thing you get into with backend is like, Proving that it made money and then the like the money it takes to arbitrate, right? Like famously, didn't Peter Jackson have to sue New Line be over Lord of the Rings profit sharing because they were yeah, like, Lord I mean, of the Rings hasn't made any money? Yeah, cast the cast of friends did the same thing where they each uncovered, you know, whatever, I think thirty or forty million dollars a piece that they hadn't been paid out. So like there, there's certainly all that. I think like, yeah, maybe I'm a little pie in the sky about it. It just to me feels better to the have dream. the option. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. yeah. Look, I always take it in the deal memo when it's offered, but I always make sure I negotiate that rate that like if I walk away and I never get the back end, I'm like, oh, I still feel good about the work I did on that project. And I still feel like I was paid properly and I didn't go into debt or have to put meals on a credit card. Exactly. But, yeah. But no one should no one should that. take a cost of living rate discount, right? If it's yeah. if your life will be harder because you're working on this project and you shouldn't work on that. I mean, harder in general in paying yeah. for the things you need to do, then you should never take that rate. And that's a, a good rule to live by. Um, if it's offered, take it. If not, you know, make sure you're taking jobs where you can support yourself. I think this yeah. is also a good way to assess if this is a job you want to invest in. Because if you are sussing out if they have a distribution strategy or are they somebody, is this an indie film where they don't have any budget for festivals, then that is a red flag, you know, to me. So because not only are you investing your, your time, but time is money. And, and I think this also brings us to a, a great question that uh, no film school writer Alyssa Miller posed to us, which is how should I be allocating my funds? And I think that this even if back end is not, not an unlikely possibility, I do think it is thinking in the right mindset of investing to a certain extent. So make sure that you have your means for living. But, you know, even if you're putting away a certain amount, 
that you can invest and diversify, whether it's in potential indies, you know, knowing that maybe one out of 20 may eventually pay back in the long run, but thinking about different ways that you can be investing your assets, your money to make it work for you, which I think is something that we also don't talk about that often. Because here in the film industry and as a freelancer, it's not like we have a 401k that's presented to us where you get matching from your employer that doesn't exist along with many other things that exist in many other industries that like HR that don't exist. Everyone should immediately at a grad or at a school, at a film school, just open up like a savings account, 401k, something for retirement and put money away. Just do it. And if you can't do it one month, it's fine. Just try because when you turn 60, you'll be like, I'm really glad I did that. I have a you don't want to start it when you're question 40. about this. I have a newbie mm-hmm. question about this. If I have student loans, should I be opening up a Roth IRA yes. type account yeah. and still yes. putting savings away? You should have a Roth IRA no matter what. Student loans could possibly go away. They keep being put on hold. It really doesn't affect your credit if you pay them. You know what I mean? Like you don't want to go into forbearance where like, but like you should have a Roth IRA. it's the number one thing you can put in $6,000 max a year. So it doesn't even feel like a crazy amount. Um, And the compound interest on that, I think if you started investing in your early twenties, by the time you're ready to retire at 65, if you put in $6,000 a year, compound interest turns it into almost $2 million. So like, that's a lot to live on. $6,000 to save a year is almost impossible in your 20s. I totally get that. But even if you're putting in a couple hundred dollars or a couple thousand dollars, that interest will build up. Um, there's you don't pay taxes on that money unless you take it out at the very end or for very specific life things. Like if you um, have a kid, you can take it out tax free. You You can can take it out to buy a house. Yes, exactly. Yeah. Yeah, I'm not going to be that guy, but my dad worked at Vanguard for a very long time. Um, He's a financial analyst, open a Vanguard account, get a Roth IRA. It's very easy. Yeah. I'm, I'm bad bad with money. It's the only thing I've done. That's like truly uh, smart. With that, and my dad's always like uh, uh, very proud of it. But yeah, get a Roth IRA as soon as you can. I think when you're 18, you can open that account, um, put money in. Even if you piecemeal put money in every year, that will become your 401k. Because GG is right, Hollywood's not built for this, right? It's just not yeah. built for the the saving and putting money away. If you get in a union, if you're lucky enough to be in a union, I think for the WGA to get the pension, you need to work for a certain amount of time, it might be seven straight years. And even then it's like a, you know, a very small amount and then you're guaranteed healthcare for life and some partial part of a pension, which is just money that you've put in, not necessarily money you're going to guaranteed get. It's not easy. This isn't, this isn't the easy part of it, but like a Roth IRA is really good. I think a savings account certainly matters. Like the big thing for me, like the big lesson I had to learn was to put six months away. And sometimes I vary, you know, if you have like a, a pet a pet bill or you get married like I did last year and suddenly you're pulling money out, you know, six months is what you need. And it sucks. And we'll probably get into this a little bit later with how much you make or whatever. But like to store six months worth of cash, you might have to continue with a part-time job mm-hmm. much longer than you ever anticipated, especially if you're selling scripts or working or doing whatever. Um, but it's so important just because of the lulls. I know when COVID hit, a lot of us were out of work for w- at least a year, right? Or, or work was very limited. Um, you know, for me, that wound up saving uh, basically like I was allowed to live my life drained, drained a lot of it, right? Your six month thing. But like I wasn't in such a dire straits when Hollywood basically shut down for a year and 
nobody mm-hmm. was hiring anybody at my level anyway. And if, if you were, you're hoping to get on a set, do whatever. Hilariously, the way I paid my bills during that was working on commercials for Kaiser Permanente about, about COVID. So like uh, it did sort of work out. But those are the only jobs I worked that entire year. So like, you know, if you only worked, I think that whole year, aside from no film articles, I worked four days and it was on four Kaiser Permanente commercials. So like it was not uh, an amazing time in my life. But to have that six month cushion was a time where I wasn't like, oh, I'm going to have to move out out of L.A. I'm going to bankrupt myself. I'm going to do whatever. Uh, So, yeah, six months and a Roth IRA is super important. Vanguard makes it super easy. I'm just going to shield from them again like. I have every month it auto withdraws out of my bank account a certain amount of money, a money amount that I know is very safe to come out, right? I hopefully will never be less than whatever, like $200 a month, whatever it is. Like if you can put $250 a month in, that's $3,000 a year. That's kind of half of what you what you could do. And at the end of the year, if you get a big check or do whatever, as long as it's before January 1st, you can put that extra $3,000 in at the end of the year and max out. So and here's why it's important. Here's why it's important to do the Roth IRA before student loans. So if you have student loans, a normal savings account doesn't make sense because a normal savings, let's say your student loans are 5%. I don't know what they might be, but if you're paying 5% of your student loans and your savings account's only paying you 2%, it makes more sense to pay off those student loans first. Like, because that 5%, like if you can get rid of that 5% interest, you totally should overpay your loans. However, the beauty of a Roth IRA is it's $6,000 a year that you can deposit untaxed, which means if you're paying 25% in taxes, that is definitely better than whatever you're paying in student loans. So a separate savings account, separate stock investing, the stock market on average over the last 50 years only hits like six and a quarter or something over a certain amount of time. So like that's roughly even with your student loans, pay off your student loans first. The only exception is exactly what Jason is talking about, which is just do a Roth IRA, do a hundred a month in your Roth IRA. Anything. anything because that will compound interest and that's also pre-tax money and i guarantee you your pre-tax rate will be cheaper than your student loan rate because everybody's paying more than six percent in taxes no matter what so i think that's the really good advice that i didn't take i didn't open up my roth ira into my 30s but you can open up if you have enough of a job you can open it up at 14 and you can anyone can open it up at 18 And it's one of those things that it's already in my calendar to open it up for my daughter because that's the thing that one of my biggest frustrations about money is that so much of the advice we have about money comes directly from our parents. Mm -hmm. And one of the biggest problems in the film industry is the vast majority of our parents had normal fucking jobs. And because Mm -hmm. if your parents were chaos, you don't tend to want to be willing to go into chaos. Mm -hmm. You tend to be like, oh, I'll become a normal person. But if you had stable enough parents, whatever their income bracket was, if it was normal, stuff like this, like, you know, my dad's not optometrist. He worked for the Veterans Administration. They have a retirement fund. Like, it's a, you know, it's a normal, stable thing. They didn't have a lot of, like, really good knowledge of, like, freelance taxes, 1099, like, all of that stuff that we have to deal with. And that's why I think we should all talk about money more, because most people only talk about it with their parents. Yeah. and your parents in film, unless you're lucky enough that your parents worked in film, but then you're a Nepo baby. <laughs> yeah. I think you're, you're spot on there, Charles. Not enough people in Hollywood talk about this. And I came from a very stable, like I said, my dad worked at Vanguard for a very long time. 
you know, my mom worked for many different jobs. And when I graduated college, she was working, I went to Penn State, she wound up getting a job at Penn State. So I got a discount at the end. Then I screwed myself by going to grad school where she didn't work. (laughs) Now I've incurred, you know, around 200 grand in loans. Uh, But that's, that's probably another podcast, the old student loan podcast. But you know, so much of money is stability. And it's also um, comfortability. Is that a word? I don't know. Who's a writer on here? It is now. Yeah, it is now. But I've lived in LA in like under two different lives, right? I did the assistant route where you're getting paid per week and you know what you're going to get. And it's minuscule, but you're budgeting off that. And since 2015, I guess, really 2014, I've done the, I'm a full-time writer and I don't know what I'm going to get. So I have to bank and put stuff away. And those first couple of years, the biggest mistake I did was assume that next year I would make as much as I made the year mm-hmm. before. You know, so it's like if you have a huge year, you're like, it's only upward from here, baby. And then you don't make anything the next year. And suddenly, like, hey, you might get a great tax break, but it's also, um, you know, <laughs> not the not the sustenance you want to live on. So a lot of this is just saying like, okay, for better or worse, this is what I made. This is what I have to save. Now I go forward. A big rule um, that I put on myself, I think maybe I talked about this in a different podcast, is the 50% rule, where it's like, just in terms of screenwriting, save 50%. And, and you know, it doesn't always work out, but I try to save around that just because you never know what happens the next year. And call out the T-Pain rule, because that's the first time I heard <laughs> it was, was T-Pain. It was like, do the, every, every paycheck I make, he's like, I put 50 away into a savings account and then I spend the rest or I use the rest for a living. And so that's the T-Pain rule from now on. Thank you. I, I also think that there's something to acknowledge about the time that it takes to get a career going. So if you are changing careers, plan for it to take twice as long than mm-hmm. as you thought. You know, I, I think I had, you know, with my background in coming up in tech and advertising, I expected it to be a ramp up of two years, maybe to be working in the industry. And here I am, you know, four years later, having, having taken on assistant jobs and jobs here and there, but like the sustainable long-term career is, is something that I'm still working towards. Luckily we're here on the No Film School podcast and we get paid. But, you know, the side hustles are what bridge the gap and pay the rent for me. And I only had my first paid writing and directing gig last year. And ironically, the second half of the payment hasn't come through yet. So still still waiting on that. It's a great accomplishment. It needs to be celebrated. But it is a long game marathon. And having the, the cushion in place... And, and thinking ahead this way will allow you to continue to work towards your long-term goal. I, I feel like there's two actionable takeaways so far from the episode, which is one, uh, open up that I, Roth IRA or the equivalent. And two is talk to three of your friends who are working in this industry about this, about savings, about salary or, or rates, and, and get used to talking about money in a way that, you know, Maybe we don't do it before. So instead of being like, how's your mom? Be like, how's your savings strategy? I think that's a really good. Yeah, it's a great point. Talk to three people. Um, One thing we've talked about on No Film School a little bit, and I don't know if we've ever gone in in depth in the money angle is mentorship, right? How do I, what do you do with your money? And for me, the biggest uh, thing was like, my parents are always very open about money and they're amazing when I make anything um, reminding me that I should be saving more of it and all those things. But, but in terms of Hollywood, you know, they kind of don't get like, why does it take nine months for you to make 
all of the money when you know you, you signed the contract in January. Why weren't you paid to October? You know, and it's hard to explain. So you know, if you're out here, if you're working in the industry, ask three of your friends. But also, if you have any people ahead of you in their career. You know what I mean? Like mentors, it doesn't have to be even that far ahead. I think Gigi said the first advice she got was someone in their late 20s, right? Just like finding someone, but just someone who is ahead. Hey, how did you deal with this? What, you know, what's the way you did this? Um, just because I think the biggest hurdle for me was just like meeting people who were in similar situations as me and got through them. And, and, and I, and are like people that I've found to have success and said like, how do you negotiate this? So right now, I'm in negotiation for a, a, a job and uh, same thing. I called my friend and he basically emailed me so an email. It was like for this dear lawyer, this is what you should be asking for. This is what I know you can get, you know, that kind of thing. And that for me, not only does it save time and effort for my lawyer and hopefully closes the deal faster, but was just such an honest thing of like, Hey, this is how you can um, sustain yourself. This is, this is what you're going to want to ask for that looks out for you. And also like the production probably has this budgeted in those sorts of things. And, um, for me, that was like an an incredible opportunity, but also something like I hopefully I can pay forward someday. But finding those mentors, those people who are a little bit ahead of you, um, who will answer those questions with honesty, sort of the no BS way. Because um, I do think I remember talking to a filmmaker in 2014. I had just sold the script. I, you know, I was a little flush. I was feeling good about myself, and I was like, oh, I can't. It's going to get easier now, right? And I remember he was in his mid 40s, and he was just like, oh no, it's like the this is like, it's going to be hard for the next couple of years. Like you have to now hit this number and you have to do these things and you should put half of it away. So the number you hit small. And I just remember like that's such a dose of reality. And then being like, ah, maybe it was hard for him. But it won't be hard for me. And little did I know, you know, that next five years would be incredibly hard. And by the time I, you know, in 2019, I saw the TV show, I optioned a movie. I was like, I finally did it. COVID happened. I just restart everything. You know, you, all your products die. You're going again. You never know what, curveball Hollywood's going to throw your way. You can find people ahead of you that you can ask, you know, who maybe been through similar circumstances or seen different things. I mean, we're all the COVID generation now. We've, we've seen some shit, you know, like when it comes to Hollywood and, and what's going on. So being open and doing that, you know, we often talk about this stuff in terms of personality, right? Like, have you worked for this person? What are they like? Are they going to screw me? Blah, blah. But it's the same with money, right? Money has its own personality in this business, right? Like, how how does this company treat you? When do they pay? Do they pay on time? Are they going to pull something out? You know, are they fishy with the books later? These are the big questions. And I think having that open honesty with not only your peer group, but again, finding that mentor figure, um, you know, or figures, right? Plural is always better. Just to be able to ask those open questions uh, is important. And there's certainly groups for it. I know women in film is a big one, you know, like helps a lot of people out. Um, there's a lot of Facebook groups is, you know, I have a group of writing friends. So I'm like, Hey, I'm this studio approached me, you know, do you think this is real? <laughs> what, what should I ask? They only offered this much, you know, that kind of thing. I think it's tracking all that um, and being open and honest about what happens. Cause otherwise it's not just you getting through it. It could be a generation. It could be another one of your friends. It's, you know, different strokes and those sorts of things. Yeah, I think Let's- when we come to the end of all these kind of questions, it's always going to be about community and communication. Um, so build your community, you know, and, and even if you befriend someone who maybe isn't like that far down, you never know what job they might have six months from now. You know, when I was in grad school, my biggest, um, like the, the, the most important thing that I did was just go into the producing program and like just make friends. And now, Everyone's at, you know, ABC, NBC working at Bad Robot. And like, these are people that I can rely on for those questions. So yeah, communication, 
and community. Okay, so that leads us to our next question and our final question, which is, should you pay for your own passion projects? Yes. <laughs> yeah. Maybe, maybe no. Maybe. Though. Yeah. Don't, but also, well, it, it, it comes down to, you know, like the rules of Hollywood, like the rules of screenwriting and filmmaking. Like you have these rules, but then the, the rule is you have to break them. And so, you know, learn why you shouldn't, which is like you can go into debt. Your project might suck. Like you, you have to learn how to, you know, go out and look for funding but also sometimes you just need to put your own money behind your own stuff and it doesn't necessarily have to be like a hundred million dollar blockbuster feature it could be like the you know thousand dollar short film for most of us it won't be the hundred million dollar feature if you're not not. (laughs) i agree yes i think we have to bet on ourselves but the key is never put yourself in a position where you are risking your Mm -hmm. financial stability never do it with debt it is always better to save up the money and do it after you've saved than it is to like take out a personal loan and do it before because debt comes with interest and debt has tax implications, but also to do it knowing what you are doing it for. If you are making this passion short because you're like, and it's going to get into Sundance and it's going to get me a meeting with Marvel. That's not realistic. Like that, Mm -hmm. that has happened like twice in the last 20 years. It has happened twice, but if you're doing it to grow as an artist, if you're doing it to build relationships, if you're doing it to help you become who you want to be, if you're doing it because you're really passionate about this idea, yeah, absolutely. People keep doing it and people will do it for as long because we are, we love this thing so much and we yeah. want to do things that we would never do in any other way. But you shouldn't have any idea, even with that indie feature, the number of those indie features, the $35,000 indie features that ever make a dime is almost insignificant. So yeah. you should save up the 35000 and make it knowing that the success will be if it finds an audience and helps you grow as an artist. It is very unlikely to make it that thirty-five back. It's never about making the money in those scenarios either. It's, you know, we have um, Jeff Nichols who did Shotgun Brothers, I believe, right? That was, from my understanding, self-funded. I'm Shotgun sure it didn't make any money. Shotgun Stories, thank you. Didn't make any money, but then he's now Jeff Nichols. You have Gareth Edwards, who I don't think he funded. No, he didn't fund his own film, but you know, like very low budget, didn't make any money for the most part, but then went on to make Godzilla and Rogue One, you know, like Duplass Brothers, you know, a couple hundred, a couple thousand bucks for uh, Comfy Couch. Puffy Chair. Puffy Chair. chair. I I always get the words, the words wrong, but the intention correct. The big Comfy Um, Couch is a clown kid show from my childhood. Okay. Well, also, Lena Dunham made one, too, with something comfy, right? Tiny furniture. Tiny furniture there we go. Yeah. See, it's all about furniture. It's all about name. <laughs> yeah. You're betting on yourself to, to build a career. And I think, you know, I would encourage the people listening to, look, if you've been to Vegas and you walk in and you put $1,000 down on red or black, more power to you. But what I would encourage you to do is put $10 down first, mm-hmm. you know, and, and see what it is. You know, if you want to be a filmmaker and you're into filmmaking, um, make a smaller short first. It doesn't need to be Gareth Edwards monsters. You know, it doesn't need to be whatever, you know, like that um, high budget short is. I remember like there was one about whales. that was sort of like a Moby Dick one that wound up being purchased by Fox. Like it doesn't need to be expensive, I guess is the, my point. Do something that showcases your filmmaking prowess for a price tag. You know, I, I think the Duplass brothers have one of my favorite shorts of all time. Um, and it's just Mark walking back and forth, trying to record an answering machine message. I they, love they, that they short. Made it for nothing. And it was in, in, and I think one best short at Sundance. So like, it's really about 
it's not about how much money you spend. It's about how gripping your story is and how much you can put into it. And I think so many of us put a lot of money into something because we think that's what we'll get back. Not necessarily money, but the accolades. Oh, it'll look more professional. People will hire me to do big things. That's not necessarily the case. I've watched a, real, a lot of really bad, really expensive shorts. I've watched, yeah. oh, I've watched a lot of really great, inexpensive ones. It's, it's really about what you can do with the audience and also like what you're good at. You know, Make sure it's a short that focuses on what you're good at. If you're good at fight scenes, shoot a one-scene fight scene. You know, That's like, hey, we put all our budget in, but we did it and it's just in the living room and then it's over and you know, maybe it showcases where your town is. If you're good at a walk and talk, do a really long walk and talk. Whatever it is, you know, like, make sure you, you put the time and effort into it. Um, and then you know, don't scrimp on sound because it's the most important part. Pay for sound. Always overpay for sound. Or overpay. no, don't overpay for sound, but pay for sound. Yeah. You, you can sound sound. spend longer casting than you think you need to. Yeah. That is always the thing that breaks my heart about like a buddy of mine will have a great like or a student will have like a great idea and they'll have a great script and they'll do a thing and then it'll be like a month out from their shoot and I'll be like, Oh, how's casting? Do you find the cast? And they're like, Oh, I'm putting out the notice today. And I'm like, oh, oh no! Like, like you, you should already have great people, or you should push. Like, you can't like, like that. That is the thing. If you don't have great sound and a great cast, your short is not like it could be beautifully shot, but it doesn't matter. It's just not gonna. It's not gonna sing. So, mm-hmm. spend yeah, more so time on shorts, casting. Yeah, casting I think is is super important. Narrative cram is the other thing we talk about, right? It's like you're making a short. You're not making a feature. Even if it's like a showcase for a feature, um, it should have its own contained smaller story in it. And I've, I've often seen just these expensive ones because they're spending so much try to become more expansive than they actually could be. You know, focus on that, that smaller story, even if it's expensive, taking you somewhere. You know? We should do a short film episode because I'm I'm doing a short film right now and I'm getting a bunch of notes from people and they're like, at this scene and that scene. And I'm like, we went from two actors to seven and a car. And I'm like, no, <laughs> um, you know, and, you and can't look do that. That costs more money, right? Exactly. exactly think, yeah. But when it comes to spending your own money, uh, aside from spending on sound, I, I think if you're going to be spending on a short film, don't expect to ever get the money back, right? We've already said that, but it's we should say it again just to make sure you're up top. If you're putting money in it, it has to be money that you don't think you're going to get back and that you can live no matter what if you don't get that money back. Um, you know, the best case scenario, sure, maybe you win a couple awards, maybe get some sort of like stipend or wherever, or, you know, an agency's and be able to sell it. Great. But that mostly doesn't happen, right? Um, whether it's a short or a feature, we all love the Kevin Smith story, right? $28,000 on credit cards, sold it for $4 million at Sundance, blah, blah, blah. And, and I think as much good as that story does, it also like creates this false sense of reality that someone with a brilliant idea could take on all that debt and do it. The people we don't hear about is like some guy named Greg who did it and now lives in North Dakota again and is swimming in debt and is still working in a 7-Eleven, you know, like and yeah. every and Kevin the Smith, there's a hundred Gregs, you know? Yeah, exactly. And the fa- they and we've never seen or heard of the film because he didn't finish it. Absolutely. Well, also, exactly. That was yeah. a time and a place like clerks launched in an early nineties indie film. Boom. A movie just as good made today would, would not sell at all. I mean, that's like, clerks Absolutely. is great. I love clerks. Clerks is super charming. I'm not insulting that, but I remember having this realization when I was in grad school where the student came back with a short that they had made in like 1988 and they were like, and this short had gotten them a feature and it was like, and it was like not very good. And like, 
And it was one of those things where I was like, oh, in the last 15 years, shorts have gotten better because we have better access to equipment and we have editing, non-linear editing now and VFX are easier. And so like, like you can look at some shorts from some famous filmmakers that they made in the 60s and 70s that got them studio careers that would not do anything for you today. Because Absolutely. like our yeah. expectations for what a short is and our expectations for what an indie feature can be are so wildly different that even Clerks, as like as hilarious and charming and wonderful as Clerks is, it's still one of my favorite Kevin Smith movies. I don't know that Clerks Clerks today would not sell for four million dollars. No, it would be. I mean, it would be on YouTube or TikTok, and it would be a series of scenes, and it would just be Dante's long day, and you would just constantly get these little vignettes. It would be it'd be like high maintenance. One of these other things that maybe sells later after it gets a cult following on Vimeo. But yeah, I think you're absolutely right, Charles. The expectation of, of the audience is so high now. We have cameras on our phones. You know, digital cinematography has taken, you know, can make things look lush. You can apply a loot to anything, it turns out. And, and you know, make wait a look, minute. You, you can know. add medieval interest instruments to anything? Yeah. Is there exactly. a loot bu- add <laughs> loot button in, <laughs> in Premiere? I need loot, loot, How do you say it? I'm a writer. Don't get on that. Loot, but I love loot. Yeah, I'm changing yeah. it. It's loot from now on. Yeah, yeah, it's loot. You heard it here first, folks. It's, ex- I, you know, it's all it's all relative. But I think like in terms of like cash and money, just spend what you're comfortable on. You know, if you can get investors, that's always good. Like, I've uh, contributed enough Kickstarters to know, you know, like uh, who, which friends finish, which friends don't. And then I remember that forever. Um, but yeah, it's, it's going to be interesting <laughs> to sort it out. You, know? you, you do learn a lot about your friends with your Kickstarters. Book. Yeah. One thing that I want to just circle back to is one of the questions about the cost of living in these production hub cities and sort of this, you know, acknowledging that the we live in these bubbles where things are very expensive if you live in LA or New York and also these cities that are very social. And the I think in my 20s, I felt like I did have to show up to everything and buy a drink at the bar and that was part of the socializing but one way to like shift and still be networking is doing things like instead of saying let's grab a coffee let's say let's walk the silver lake reservoir or let's hike at griffith and do that instead because i think it's very easy to feel like you have to spend to be part of it of course you can always just sit out and join stubs amc stubs and you know maximize that as you, as we talk about all the time but like in these cities where where it's expensive to just exist i think we also have to be comfortable saying no to things and it's okay to be like hey things are a little tight right now haven't got booked a job this month can we do something else and people are very receptive and open to that or sometimes then they buy you coffee and they'll be like when you get your million dollar gig next i'll cover this it's all about community and supporting each other and communication mhm Well, it's also like accepting that we all like, my God, coffee got really expensive this year. Mm -hmm. Like, like, I don't know about LA, but New York, it's now $8 for a latte. And all of my coffee meetings are now office meetings or a lap because like, I'm not buying coffee in a coffee shop anymore every day. Like that's $8 is ridiculous. So yeah. Coffee's uh, also gotten really fancy. Hasn't it? Oh, that's true. Yeah, it's delicious a- either way. You know, I think coffee is fancy and delicious. But uh, mm. the cost of living in LA is pretty crazy. We've actually done a pretty extensive write up on No Film School about it. The write up is called "How Much Money Do You Need to Survive in Los Angeles," and I think it applies to 
pretty much any city if you look at it. There's just a lot that people forget about, right? So like in LA, a two-bedroom apartment on average is $3,200. You know, utilities range from like $130 to $200, groceries $300, gas, parking, car insurance, Netflix, Amazon, Hulu, HBO, cell phone, all that stuff adds up. And if you don't have a roommate or you want roommates or whatever, like you're talking about a cost of living each month, you know, depending on what you're paying around $2,500. It's not easy to make $2,500 a month. I think when I was an assistant, I got, I made like $650 a week. Um, so I don't know that I could live in a two bedroom now uh, as things stand. I'm sure that number has gone up, but it is something to think about when it comes to budgeting your time out and paying for different things. Um, I don't know how it's like living in New York and, and maybe Charles, you can kind of shed some light on this, but in LA, we've had incredible success just walking around and looking at uh, for rent signs in neighborhoods. Like we would walk around in neighborhoods and find for rent signs that aren't attached to like a, a website, like West Side Rentals or whatever the other one is. And uh, back in 2013, I think, 2014, I, uh, I forget, my buddy and I, we walked through Santa Monica and we found a sign for rent, called the number put our you know deposit down that day and funny funny story we left to go get the money and we came back and the building manager was like oh there are some people here trying to bribe me to to give them the apartment over you and she was like i like you guys better so we're gonna you know give the apartment to you we got a two-bedroom apartment for 20 20 2100 in santa monica on fourth and san vicente and if people don't know where that is that is literally on the beach in 2013 and everything around us was like a grand more my friend still lives there he's paying like 24 maybe i don't know for a two-bedroom which is dirt cheap for the area and we moved my my partner and i moved back into this building like in 2020 and that sense of bringing it back to community and communication that foundation of community helped us find a place to live like our friends were like, hey, there's a unit open come back to this building it's affordable the building manager knew us so they wouldn't raise the rent on us when you know we moved in like it's it's those things that are going to be beneficial to you in the long run Uh, absolutely awesome all right well with that with the great note about community uh let's wrap it up i'm so glad we spent an hour talking about money guys we should do this more often we should have the annual march madness march money magic episode uh where can everybody find you on the internet i'm on mastodon and I, i do stuff on youtube you can find me at Jason Hellerman on Macedon and at Jason Hellerman on Twitter. Uh, and as always, comment on the No Film School articles. I'll try to reply. Otherwise, email me. Um, even if you have a money question, I'm no expert. I won't forward any Roth questions to my dad. You can ask Vanguard yourself. But uh, otherwise, you know, um, email me and we'll, we'll try to help you out. I'm at Lost in Graceland. And also, yes, I love the idea of people emailing their movie money questions so we can answer them on the podcast and continue this conversation about money. Yeah, we need we need more questions. So please do send them in. We have some, a modicum of experience between the four of us. So we'll, 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 we'll be able to find an answer for you. And uh, I am at iyaro87 on Instagram, like iPod, but iyaro. And then uh, I'm on Twitter, but I don't use Twitter. So don't, don't at me. <laughs>